Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ladies and gentlemen, live from the simply beautific hills of Encino, California, where industry and nature work hand in hand to create a better life for all of us. I am the legendary Burl Bear. The program is produced by Magic Matt Allen. It's called True Crime Uncensored. I'm your joyful host, and Howard Lapidus is looking pissed off about something. Uh, Matt, what's, what's your problem, Howard? Mark C.G. Boyer's here. Magic Matt Allen's our producer, and he's just, he's under more pressure than an astronaut. But sitting around the Thanksgiving dinner table at the Mudgeon residence, when they bring up great-grandpa, it does give them cause for alarm, because great-grandpa was one of the most notorious serial killers in America's history. Jeff hey, Mudgeon. Jeff. Hey, Burl and Howard, it's a pleasure. I've been looking forward to be on your show for a long time. Well, boy, are you going to be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's not. We're going to go We're gonna go on a nice little ride here. That's okay, a, that's... we're going to crank you up there, Jeff. We want you to speak up loud and clear. So you're, right. you're growing up in a family where great-grandpa was a serial killer. Did this come up in conversation much around the dinner table? Well, no. I didn't know who we were, so to speak, until I was about 45. My grandfather had kept it a secret from the entire family, including his wife. Whoa. So, I mean, it wasn't like something you were ashamed of all your life. You didn't get ashamed until you were older. No, I was a fairly ordinary, normal man, maybe a little eccentric once in a while, but... Uh, you know, I like to fish, paid my taxes, followed the law, and then one uh, so, one night at one night at dinner, uh, Grandpa was forced to tell the truth, and uh, all the family was sitting there with jaws dropped and in shock. When he learn, said uh, uh, to learn what his life was all about, and your life, the life was what? What was the truth? Well, the entire family, uh, after the uh, trial of uh, Herman Mudgett, the most evil man that ever lived. I don't think anyone will contest me that. Um, he, the whole family had moved from Chicago at the turn of the century out to California to escape the stigma. And uh, to, for people who aren't familiar with your lovable uh, great-grandfather, give us a little backstory on, on this guy. Well, he, uh, take it from maybe your most... Uh, your, uh, the, the, the eeriest book you've ever written and then put a, a real man into place. He was uh, a doctor, graduated from the University of Michigan, maybe one of the highest IQs ever recorded there. He uh, taught elementary school. He had a candy store in Chicago. Uh, he built a, a glass-bending factory in order to dispose of the bodies. And he just basically went around life figuring out ways that he could kill more people um, I, un, unheard of. I, I, I still, in all my research, haven't found anyone even close. Pretty disgusting fellow. And no one ever talked about it. Now, you and your grandfather, next generation, you and he, uh, Bird, you weren't particularly close with him, were you? Well, if you can imagine, the man the man was an engineer at PG&E in California. He was a brilliant man. Uh, he was not friendly. He talked to me maybe two or three times my entire life. He had decided uh, to seal off all emotion, love, and friendliness, I think. Uh, maybe maybe afraid of the thoughts that would pop up in his head, as they do all of us once in a while. And uh, instead of uh, showing love, he just, did, he just did his thing, his duty, his obligation. And I, I did not like him much at all. How, how old was he when his father was convicted, when this whole thing came out and the trial happened and then he was uh, executed? 
Well, it was his grandfather. It was oh, my Okay, so it's your great guess. I, I, I kind of lose track. It's your great great grandfather. It's easy to do. The, the, the best way for me is to say grandfather's grandfather. So he was not alive at the time of the execution. I think he was born about 1902. Okay. The execution was like 1896. So he's the son of the son. He's the son of the son. That's right. Okay. And now, he, he didn't talk to you. you. There was there was no... The generations were hardly passed from one to the next. So you were rather surprised when Grandpa dies. Now, you weren't surprised that he died, but surprised that when he died, he leaves something to you. He left me uh, some fishing tackle boxes, which, when you read the story, uh, the first part of the book is about how... I hated this man that liked to fish, knew I liked to fish, and never invited his grandson along on a fishing trip. So when my father, after he died, brought these fishing tackle boxes, which were the only item in his will, and the man was worth a lot of money, um, he had one paragraph, and he said, I want these boxes left to Jeffrey, and he had, you know, seven or eight grandkids and uh, three, two sons. So when he brought these uh, tackle boxes to me, I, I pretty much set them over in the corner of the garage and wasn't wasn't interested. And one day, don't know why, kicked them over, looked through all his fishing tackle equipment, <clears throat> grew bored quickly with it, tried to put it all back together, and the box wouldn't um, set down properly. Well, in the bottom were some notes and a couple of diaries, and that's what the story's all about. They were the diaries of the killer. Ooh. Now, do you think your grandfather knew they were there? Your great-grandfather. Uh, the story is about the diaries, all right? Well, what I'm asking is, do you think the person who bequeathed you the tackle boxes <coughs> knew the diaries were in there, or did he just forget? No doubt. He knew they were there. He's the one that built the bottom, the secret compartment on the bottom of the... Why, well, hey, why you, Jeff? That would be the next question, yes. That's well, why that's I asked. What, that's, the, that's what the story is all about. There was, in the end of the, one of the diaries, there is a list of family members. And my grandfather's name was on there. His brother's was not. And my name was in the list. And none of my, not, none of my brother or sisters or my uh, cousins was on the list. So it obviously someone had intended that one day I would have the boxer. Wow. That's that's just bizarre. So what's the clue? Why uh, why did you win the prize? That's that's, <laughs> and and it may be in the book and all that. And and, and Jeff, we're going to sell your book. Don't worry about it. So, but I, I just love hearing the story. And then that the people will go and buy this book, because which is called Bloodstains, by the way. You got to read this book. The killer intended me to be the next, as he had been the next from his great great grandfather. And that's what the story's all about, trying to figure out why, if there is an evil species in our race, and was I part of it? And it certainly seemed like uh, I had the credentials with uh, this man as my uh, my ancestor. Well, John, genetically, you've got the credentials. What? Uh, let's think back over 45 years before you, you know, the bingo, you know? Right. Is this like a, what'd you, what'd you, a, a, a virus that lays dormant? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, did you see anything coming? I mean, were you just you just leading a normal life, wondering, well, torturing flies and my, small my, my invertebrates? Well, are you answering well, I, the question? I get, in, okay, I get into that, and I explain that while I was a moral man, I had a uh, maybe a lack of emotion. I had uh, 
maybe needed uh, help with uh, love and things like that. Um, I had thoughts that would pop into my head that, quite frankly, I think all men do, and I just wrote them off as the thing all, all men have. Well, once you learn this is in your background, those haunts, those, those thoughts start to haunt you. All of a sudden, when you think about hurting someone or, or uh, anger or jealousy, those things change and they take on a different aspect. And soon, uh, you don't know which way uh, your life is going anymore. And that's you start to read to into out. things. You start to read into things that previously you wouldn't pay that much attention to. How, you start how, putting more significance on them. Also. How, how close did you ever exactly. get to hurting anybody, Jeff? Uh, I've been in played football. I've been in fights. I uh, I never took a knife or a gun to anyone. I have thought about it, which was what I was trying to bring up. What I, which is something I imagine all men have at one time in their yeah, life. Yeah, I had that a half an hour ago. <laughs> no, but you know, I was in traffic. Well, the, I, the idea is you keep it in the realm of fantasy. The thing with serial killers or killers is that once they cross that line, the line has been crossed. Then you can just keep on keep on doing it. That's that's exactly the point. Then uh, things that. Uh, uh, you would have uh, written off before. Now you start think, wondering if you need to go to a therapist to maybe uh, have them cleansed from your soul. Did you? Yes, I did. So we reached that point. Let's go back a little bit here. You, you just get these diaries. You open them up. You start reading them. In the book, Bloodstains, by Jeff Mudgett, you have actual excerpts and portions of this diary. And i got to say, it is absolutely mind-boggling and compelling to read this guy's diary. The guy is obviously brilliant. I mean, his IQ just shines off of the what he says and how he does it, but the guy is terminally twisted. <laughs> really way twisted. Off, way off the charts. Way off the charts, and I, I had the, uh, the feeling that he actually brought it down a little when he wanted someone to understand him even. Well, he, was, he was way out. He invented some anesthesia in the 19th century. He was in hormonal science before anyone else even knew what it was. He was looking into longevity, trying to figure out how he could live forever. This was the true Dr. Frankenstein, let me tell you. What um, I found it interesting that, um, that he had a calculated uh, death, an opportunist death at the same time. I found that an interesting dichotomy with the individual. Um, you know what? Explain explain that a little more to me. I well, that. I mean, um, he at one point he is on the run. He convinces uh, his, um, uh, I guess, his right hand man, who is more of a henchman than anything else, convinces the guy's wife to get to lend him some of their children as he goes on this cross country odyssey. And ends up killing the kids because they were uh, they were convenient uh, mechanism for uh, manipulating the wife. And cut down on the hotel room. Yeah, yeah. You're bringing up the story about when he murdered the children in Indiana, right? Yeah, right. but that uh, that seems more opportunistic than when than the uh, the premeditation he put together when he built his little castle. I, I think everything was premeditated. If you had to ask me. If you gave me the chance to research any action he did, it was all premeditated, all logical, and it all had a reason that benefited him personally. And what was the reason? 
I don't know. I don't know. I, you know there's no, that's why I told you earlier there's so many mysteries about yeah. this man that still exist that are just popping. I have a Facebook page, the Blood Saints Facebook page. Every day, someone from around the country gives me another fact I didn't know, and it's just amazing stuff coming in. What's the address of that page? How do we get there? Just Facebook? Bloodstains, just Bloodstains, Facebook, right? That's the, the, the professional uh, the page, and we, uh, we, we submit things about the Jack the Ripper connection every day. We submit things, um, incredible stuff, and it's uh, just uh, a lot of fun to stay on top of it and uh, have everyone join in. We haven't even made the jump to Jack the Ripper. Why don't we do that? Well, that's that's, uh, I'm, and I'll tell you, we'll, we'll start off with uh, when I when I put that in the book, I had a couple very famous authors who uh, want to remain remain anonymous. That uh, they told me, don't do it. It's going to be the worst thing you ever did in your life. They had done it, and there is an anger, this thing from people who want to fight anyone that says they think they know who Jack the Ripper was, and I. I quite frankly didn't believe it, and I'm starting to Now you're starting through. to believe it, yeah. Oh, I'm believing it. And uh, so every day I get beat up on uh, on the facts. But here, here's what happened. When I knew what ship he rode over on from New York to London, it was a canard line called the Etruria. He loved London. He loved Paris. He had a lot of money. He used to go spend it like uh, like it was just going out of style. He so always, it was, do- it was, do- it was money. It was do- whose money was it? Was it his doctor money or did it was it his con man money? No. He used to sell skeletons to medical schools around the country. His were known, you'll love this, as the most pristine for obvious reasons. So all these doctors in our country were learning from the murdered skeletons. Oh, so there, it was, all this was was about inventory. Yes, and... Merchant licensing. <laughs> and he did life insurance. He made a fortune in life insurance. He was making 2 or $3 million a year, turn of the century. Now think how That's much a lot money, of money. That is today. <laughs> So That's he, a lot of money. He, he was out there spending it as fast as he could make it. So he's on the he's on the canard line. He's heading over to London. Go ahead. I knew he was over there. I knew he tried to sell skeletons to the University of London Medical School. There are archives over there showing that an American surgeon had been there trying to sell skeletons. I knew that he had wanted to um, just just the things in the diaries about. He didn't mention murdering and went there, but I also knew. Anyone, anytime he went anywhere for an extended period of time, he killed people. I also knew that uh, from studying the autopsy reports on the first two or three murder, uh, Ripper murders, that the pathologist had said, listen, there's no way someone could have removed these organs in four or five minutes in the dark without damaging other organs of the human body without having been a surgeon. So that, that kind of raised the curiosity in my head. I put it in the book, but I thought, you know, this is something we need to look into. This may be the round peg in the round hole. Well, about two months after I published the book, I get a uh, contact from a fellow named Mark Potts, who has been researching Holmes being the Ripper for about five years. He gives me the handwriting comparisons between the Ripper letters and what Holmes wrote while he was in prison awaiting execution. Well, when you look at them, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not an expert, they look the same. Well, he sent it to the British Library. The British Library gave him an expert, a woman with the credentials a mile long, and she agreed to compare them. Well, about six weeks ago, she came back with a conclusion that said they're the same. 
So this is hot off the presses, this news. It's, it's right now, and we're, uh, like I said, we're getting beat up all over it right now. And what we've, what we've done now is, the state, if the handwriting is close, let's take the stamp off one of the envelopes, the Dear Boss letter envelope. It's a lick and stick. Let's do a DNA. Well, we found out Patricia Cromwell had already had it done. The data is available. So now we need to get the DNA from Holmes or someone in his family. How about you? I've already I've already offered tissue. And let's compare what's on the back of the stamp. Well, as you imagine, the naysayers come back and say, well, that doesn't prove that he was the killer. Okay, but it does prove he was there in London. He was there at the time. He was interested in events and for someone to state that Holmes wouldn't have killed two or three of the prostitutes in London while he was there, seems like they're pushing it a little too far for me, away from maybe scratching the head and thinking, you know, let's try to prove that it is him. Uh, were the, uh, were, the, were the, the Ripper prostitutes blondes? One more time? Were the, were the London or the Ripper prostitutes, were they blonde? Blonde. I don't, I don't think they were. As a matter of fact, I know they weren't the pictures that I've seen. Because it's interesting that apparently um, the women that uh, your ancestor stalked and brought to his castle were mostly blondes. I did not uh, know that before, and but I'll take your word for it. I have a question for you. There may be, uh, you know the answer, maybe you don't. Regarding on the Jack the Ripper uh and the reason I'm thinking of this is that in the Green River killings up in the Seattle area, there was more than one person killing people and dumping them in that area, but the modus operandi wasn't the same. You had more than one person killing people, but not all of them were the Green River killer. Were the Jack the Ripper killers, were all of the women who had their ovaries removed, or were there other were there, there inconsistencies in the killings? No, and that's an excellent question. And if you read Scotland Yard's own book about the Ripper, where Scotland Yard investigates, I think is the title, they've long thought there was a couple copycats after the first two or three. That it wasn't necessarily the same man all five. During the during during the time, we have to, we have to take a sixty second break while we have to sharpen our scalpels. <laughs> we'll be right back with Jeff Mudgett, author of Bloodstains: True Story. We'll be back in 60 seconds on True Crime Uncensored. There are some things in life that just don't go together. But listen to this. You take one drop-dead gorgeous woman. You add an incredibly wealthy, handsome man. You put them together. They have all the money, clothes, jewels, drugs, alcohol they could possibly want. Well, then you throw in a Glock 9mm handgun. It's all good fun until someone gets killed. Fatal Beauty, the shocking true story of beautiful Rhonda Glover, who put 13 bullets from a Glock 9mm into her boyfriend of 15 years, Jimmy Jost. Oh, she said he was abusive. The friend said he was passive. Either way, he was dead. Fatal Beauty, available January 2011 from Pinnacle True Crime by Burl Bear, living legend, true crime author, and trust me, he's brilliant, I know it, because I am Burl Bear, author of Fatal Beauty. If you own an iPhone or ride a plastic pony in front of Albertsons, you are no longer tied to your computer. You are now free to roam while Barstow's burning and take Outlaw Radio with you everywhere you go. 
Grab an Outlaw Radio iPhone application, the smoking, drinking, interrupting 24-hour party that you follow now follows you. Your iPhone is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends at Outlaw Radio. Change the way you listen to the radio seven days a week. Now available in the iTunes App Store. Back to True Crime Uncensored with Burl Bear and Howard Lapidus. And featuring Mark C.G. <laughs> Boyer and sometimes Marie Mackey, Esquire. Esquire, no less. Produced by Magic Matt Allen. Produced by Magic Matthew Allen. Oh, sorry. Who in turn is produced by Lori Downey Jr. And now, some of the aforementioned True Crime Uncensored. Our guest today, Jeff Mudgett, author of the fabulous new book, Bloodstains. Got a big look into this guy's eyes. Right on the cover of the book, you'll get this book. And there's a close-up of the eyes of this guy who was one of the worst serial killers in American history. And a quote from him, I was born with the devil in me, and he has been with me ever since. The guy's a real pain in the ass. Not Jeff, but his ancestor. Thank you. So, uh, this great... Great, great grandfather, uh, Daddy Batty over here. Um, if I was Nancy Grace, that's what I'd be calling. <laughs> the Batty comes, Daddy. Yeah, she comes up with these uh, tot mom things. Uh, she likes to brand people. But let's say that you know, I mean, the, the school's still out on whether he's Jack the Ripper, and, and it doesn't Jeff doesn't it, it? It rides kind of on the DNA. And when when will we know? You know, and quite frankly, um, I've gotten to the point where I, I tell all my readers. What does it matter? Let's let's let the experts have it now. I've I've given them a roadmap. They can decide whether they want to determine if Holmes is Jack the Ripper. Exactly. I've done, I've done enough telling the world. Hey, here's something you might want to consider, because basically him killing two or three prostitutes in London pales in comparison to the hundreds, maybe thousands he killed here in the states with a building called the Murder Factory. That's uh, that, that's what I think we should be focusing on because we'll look if it comes back that his DNA says he's dragged Jack the Ripper and we find that out that's a headline and that's another book you get to write because you're his great 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 grandson uh, you know along with other people that may want to choose to do it but you'd be a descendant wouldn't that be something but that's that's the subject and topic of something else what I think is really just plain fascinating is this the story of you finding. The diaries, and then what the, your personal journey, and I think that uh, you know that is what the book's about, and it's the uncovering uh, in your own mind, and in, in, in the mind, I guess, of the rest. Didn't you? Did you open the door to the rest of the family to what was going on here? How did you do that? How do you, you sit everybody down? It's not like kind of coming out and going, "Hey, I'm gay." No, hey, uh, <laughs> Grandpa <laughs> knocked off about two hundred that we know of. You know. Yeah, that's yeah, that's the real alternative lifestyle. Um, <laughs> um, you know, at first, uh, my father wouldn't talk to me. You know, m- mom being mom, she was behind me the whole way. But the rest of the family was terribly upset, and I had to sit them all down and say, "You know what? Um, I don't want to run away from this anymore, like the family's done. If this is the truth about us, I want to come out and state it, if for no other reason that it's our duty and obligation to the people that he killed." And, and that that's, was my position I took with the family. And you know what? They've all come around. They're all fine with it. And they're all on my side now. And uh, Is your dad uh, still with us? Oh, yeah. My dad's oh, he's uh, eight uh, years old, strong, strong as hell. Okay. So, and he's come around? 
Yeah, he's uh, all on my side. He goes to some of my readings and uh, with me and a couple oh, of conferences, nice. and uh, so okay. we're fine. Now, what about families of people that the daddy baddie killer did? <laughs> God, you're doing uh, it now. Aren't I you? love it. Yeah. <laughs> what What about the family members of people he killed? Are they, are they finding you, or you know, I mean, do descendants of the the dead people? You're the first that's ever asked me that, and uh, it's quite amazing to me. I've had two women come to me and say that they think that Holmes killed members of their family and that they are 100% behind me in telling the truth about this evil thing and, they, and they're enjoying it. And, uh, and uh, they were, uh, uh, you know, they took my breath away. It was an amazing um, uh, conversation. So are you able to vet them out, and, and do you think it's it's real, or are they just uh, are they could they they could be groupies, so to speak? You ever uh, seen all the groupies, uh, Howard? Yes, I have, I, and I mean that in, in the nicest of ways. <laughs> Author groupies look like Jessica Fletcher. There you are. You know, I I didn't research whether they were real. I took their word for it, and mm -hmm. uh, I don't I don't really think a good honest person would lie about something like that. Yeah, they how do you do that? They I, might have it wrong. But, I'm with uh, you. I'm with you. I just I just yeah. wanted to ask along, because, the, along the same lines, uh, your uh, your great grandfather sired uh, a num uh, children with other women besides your uh, his uh, original wife. Uh, have you had contact with any of your half siblings? No, relatives. no, I haven't. But you're right. He had hundreds of women. He was uh, promiscuous to the core, a charmer, had movie star looks. And uh, when he was, uh, the jury came back on his trial, just to give you an example of what women would give to him, he had six of his lovers in the uh, audience. The jury found him guilty. He was uh, condemned to death. As they walked him away, the six women, as reported by the New York Times on their article that day, were crying in the audience. And they knew who and what he was. So even though they knew he was a vicious killer, they cried when he was found guilty. Hey, guys, good is good. What can I tell you? Yeah. <laughs> Always remember that. Yeah. So, uh, That's what the New York Times said, anyway. Mm -hmm. yeah. And before Viagra, no kidding. Yeah. But how old was he then? He, he, wasn't, he was in his late 30s, wasn't he? Well, he was born in 1861. Okay, and this was, he was, he, he was executed? At, well, supposedly executed. Supposedly executed about 1895, 96. My memory has escaped me on dates. But Help me with there. the math on that. So what well, because the thing is, is the diary that he finds goes goes up to the execution, through the execution, and beyond the execution. Yeah, we'll get to that in a second. But but is the birth, or, sorry, the death certificate reads how old he, how was he? How old was he? About well, he would he would have had to have been thirty-five. Uh, yeah, that which is fairly young. Yeah, fairly young for a br brilliant guy killing how many people a year? You got to figure. Sixty-one to ninety-six. Yeah. Yeah, sixty. Well, how what's that? It says sixty-one to ninety-six. Yeah. So what is that? To, help me out. You're the accountant. Thirty-five. Thirty-five. So that that's that's a lot of uh, a lot of death to squeeze into a short time. Yeah, but you don't know when he really started. Well, he didn't start when he was 10. You don't know that. You don't know that. Uh, Probably well, started with puberty. Guy, this guy was, when he was 10, when he was 10. Sorry, go ahead. Let me give you a shock here. He started when he was 13. There you go. Wow. There you go. <clears throat> you know, once you do it, you know, uh, Brent Turvey, 
who's kind of an expert on this sort of stuff, was asked, what's the deep, you know, deep thing on these serial killers? What is the, the real deal on why they do it? And he says, it's kind of like going to a Chinese restaurant. They tried it, they liked it, they did it again. You know, once you do it, and two hours later, you got to do it again. Yeah. Well, the dim sum was good. Well, uh, there you go. Yeah, because once you cross the line, it's crossed. We we kid uh, we we kid the serial killers. <laughs> Not that there's anything vastly amusing right. about them, but what else can you do? But Jeff's got a sense of humor, so he's. One of the, one of the most infamous aspects of this individual was uh, his deliberate, uh, calculated construction of a hotel near the uh, what the World's Fair was it? Well, let's talk about that, Jeff. And he built this place in a specific manner. I, I just gave a talk at a conference in Chicago on this, and to me it's the most incredible thing of all. Here's a man that knew the World Fair was coming. He knew there was going to be 500,000 people there at any one, you know, uh, over a month or a year. I actually, the numbers escaped me, but he knew 40 to 50,000 would have to come through on the railroad tracks a day to see this fair. They would come from all over the world. They were young women that came from around the country, around the world, that no one knew where they were going to be. He was like a lion on the plains of Africa waiting for antelope to come. So what he did was he figured out the transportation system of Chicago, found out where the train junction was. They called it a junction grove. He bought a piece of property there, and he started building the murder castle. Of course, he didn't call it that. It was no, the that would be poor, poor PR, yeah. The World Fair Hotel. It's tough to get permits on that, too, by the way. Just, yeah. And he had a pharmacy on the first floor, a hotel on the second floor, and the basement was a torture, was a torture chamber. Oh. And um, you can hear the from the ground up. I don't think it's ever been something like this, maybe in the history of man before. Well, it, there's lots of elements of uh, Sweeney Todd. Uh, you know, shoots for the bodies to go down so he doesn't have to carry them through the hallways. Everything you can imagine. He had control panels in his office to send gas to rooms. He had, uh, like you say, the chutes that would send them grease chutes down to the to the basement where they would land on a gurney. His assistant would strap them to the table and prepare them for surgery later that night. Here's a woman that just walked in and had a hotel room given to her. How many how many people were involved with him? Uh, you know, uh, what kind of a group did he have going? It was it, this wasn't. I would, be, I would be guessing, but I knew he always had one or two assistants with him. He had that ability to hypnotize and just empower, I guess, weak uh, weak minded individuals, and uh, they would stick stick with him till uh, till uh, he uh, either let them go or he killed them. I guess. But uh, I don't know exactly. But he got it. You know, you finished. This is a guy who finishes, probably finished medical school in his mid 20s, right? And then started surgery in his mid to upper uh, 20s. And now he's killing like a madman, building hotels, uh, uh, selling, you know, doing all kinds of things uh, and getting away with it. Wow. Uh, just fascinating. That I mean, talk more if if you can. Tell me more about that that hotel and and how long that it was. It just for the the time of the World's Fair that he really operated out of there, or was it over a, a greater period of time? No, it lasted. It lasted longer. Obviously, when he was arrested, the police figured out what it was. They took a trip down into the basement and discovered the acid bath, the uh, urns to, to uh, dispose of the human waste, and 
it didn't Jeff, didn't people, you know, you check in and you don't come check out. out. It's like Hotel, Hotel California. California. You know, it's, uh, doesn't somebody go, you know, I, my mom and dad were at this hotel in Chicago, and I haven't heard from them in uh, about three years. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I guess back then it wasn't, obviously it wouldn't work these days, thank God. Right. But back then with the World's Fair there and people coming from all over excited and uh, you know, not not having an internet, not having a BlackBerry. It, maybe it wasn't that hard for him to uh, do away with uh, lost souls. Wow. Uh, Benjamin Petzold was his main uh, accomplice at this time frame. That's right, Benjamin Petzold. You're going to write the book. And, <laughs> and uh, this, is the, this is the uh, family that he um, eviscerates as he tries to escape across. You the use smaller words. You see, we're not as smart as the great. Um, he used, pull out the roots. He used this man's family as a shield, and used them and their children and the wife. Um, to uh, as they traveled around the country trying to get away from the police, he used them as the shield to keep the police at bay. Good. So you'll put that in your book, and we'll have you on the show. <laughs> you know, there's some there's some great books already, guys, about him. The Devil in the White City is yeah, that's three, a fabulous, three million, fabulous three book. Million, three million copies. You have the Torture Doctor and Deranged. So there's some great pieces out there, and I think DiCaprio bought the rights to Devil in the White City, and they're making a movie of it right now. Yeah. He'll play. Uh, he'll he'll play uh, uh, granddaddy, uh, daddy over there. Uh, from what I understand, DiCaprio wants to play Holmes. It'd be good. Yeah, it'd be good. There's a picture of him in Wikipedia. So if you kind of uh, take a look at that and uh, and then think of well, DiCaprio. A great, great picture possible. right on the cover of Bloodstains, the uh, the book by Jeff Mudges that we're talking about. A nice close up of the eyes. In fact, you start the book by saying, "Hey, before you go any further." Take the cover of this book and look into this man's eyes and realize who it is we're talking about. I here. thought that was Jeff. <laughs> no, that this isn't no, Jeff. I this know is that <laughs> I'm kidding. Jeff is what I'm doing. Jeff is in color. This guy's in black and white. Yeah. Now, one of the contentious parts here, and I find this. Mark and I were talking about this in the car on the way to the show today. The diaries are incredible and go up to his own execution and then keep on going. Yeah, here we go. Let's go. <laughs> Let's go. Yeah. Let's go uh, this is like, this is like uh, what it reminded me of is I saw the movie Curse of Frankenstein with Peter Cushing where he's telling the whole story of you know his nightmare and then he goes up to get hung or decapitated or whatever and then it ends and then the next movie Revenge of Frankenstein shows that he didn't really die on the gallows. His buddy... Now, Tell us how he orchestrates not being killed at his execution. All right, and let me start by stating this. I cannot prove he was not hung on the gallows that day. It is my conjecture and belief from my research that he was not, that his guard was hung in his place. Now, now in the diamond, if this diary is real, which there's no reason to doubt it, uh, he's a guy doesn't write as a diary and then keep writing it after he's dead. So <laughs> we got to take his word for it here. Well, but there's many people who say they could have been forged. They're um, they're not true. They're not his. That's that's fine. That's why I called the book fiction based on a true story. One of the great things about this story, me being able to tell it like I did, was every step of the way, I have the opportunity in the future to have facts proven, like we're doing with the Ripper now and the DNA and the handwriting analysis. Next, we get to go to where he was buried. They say he was buried in Philadelphia in concrete. But let, let's go back. Let's step back a little bit. So he was arrested, right? Yeah. He was put on trial. 
one of the greatest trials in American history. They, he fired his lawyers. Here's, here's this, this brilliant mind. Of course he, fired he fires his, his lawyers. He's a serial killer. Well, he's also damn smart. He yeah. fired his lawyers. He, de he does all the argument himself in court. They still use some of his methods in moot court to train our lawyers today. Like what? The way he argued, the, 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 his methods and his strategies. They were, they just, you, you read, in the book, I, I've put a couple of quotes in there from um, the New York Times reporters about how the, uh, the lawyers there just thought he was unbelievable. So this trial goes on. There's, every day there's a new article in all the papers. That every reporter, every major reporter is there in the audience. And, um, Unfortunately, well, fortunately, unfortunately for him, he's found guilty. He's he's condemned to be hung until dead. He writes about, and this is in his memoirs, which are in the Library of Congress. You have to go in. You have to get permission. You got to put on gloves. There's one edition left, and you go in and read his memoirs. He writes about his appearance changing that he's starting to look like the devil with pointy ears and, and, a, and a chin with a point in these eyes. And these, these reporters are writing about what he says every day in, in the papers. He starts having the guard come in and be his friend, even though they're all ordered not to talk to this man. See, the judge knew that he was a master hypnotist. They were ordered not to talk to him. Well, he gets over that. So my book writes about him paying the judge a charitable donation that he was to be allowed hung with a hood over his head. Now, now, scratch your head and think about that for a second, right? He then gets to hire Pinkerton Guards, the famous detective agency. As the body comes off the gallows, it's put into a coffin and filled with concrete right there. And this is all documented. He's the Pinkerton guards have a mule team which drag this concrete-filled coffin to the cemetery. The cemetery has a hole waiting for it. The, the, the coffin's laid in. That's filled with concrete. Now tell me, when have you heard of that ever being done before? Never. Okay. Now when you know this man, he didn't believe in God one iota. He wouldn't have cared about his body after death. I swear, that wouldn't have been his concern. He would have known they were just carbon. He knew that if someone dug up the grave and they determined it wasn't him, they would have had the greatest manhunt in America since Wilkes Booth and the Lincoln assassination. And the cops would have found him and put a bullet in his head right then. He knew he had to do something about that. He did the concrete. Then, when you read the book after that, the papers talk about this Holmes curse that occurred after for 20 years. Anyone who was involved in the arrest, the trial, or the execution that ticked him off was either dead or had a terrible misfortune in their life. Too many numbers to be just a coincidence. So I write about, it's my belief, that it wasn't him that was hung. It's not him in that concrete. And he was the one that visited all those people afterwards. And killed them. To kill him or, yeah, or to well, do that's, whatever he did. That's what talk it says about, in his diary. Hey, Jeff, talk about the switch. How did he make the... That's fascinating how he made the switch. And he may have hypnotized the Pinkerton guard, but then... How did he, how did he get the rope around the guy's neck? I mean, at what point was... 
Well, he was well, he walked he was walked up. When you read the book, you'll see that the papers all talk about the appearance of him and the guards, and they talk about the similarities, and then they talk about the hood over his head, and laying when. I'd, I've never been witness to one, but what I understand is, is that a hanging, the body, the head is so ruptured from the strain of the rope, there's no chance of recognizing a man's face after that. Uh, that's what I understand. And so, he, he would have known that. He would have known that. Yeah. And it's my belief that it's not him. And like I stated at the last page of the book, listen, let's let's dig that thing up. I mean, no one cares about this man. No one's going to give a, a, a damn about him being, you know, raised from the dead. Let's dig him up. Let's break that concrete open, and let's run a DNA test on what's on what's left. We'll all, we'll also get to solve the Jack the Ripper crime right there too. He did know how to build a concrete something. He was good. He was a good construction man. Well, according to his according to his own diary, which you fell into possession of. He manages to lure this uh, prison guard, and you changed his name for legal reasons so the family wouldn't uh, come after you, which I guess they they could. But uh, yeah, who needs that aggravation? Who needs that aggravation? Right. That he the gradually, because this guy was a consummate, knew how to manipulate people, he becomes a great listener, and he engages his fellow in conversation and listens to the story of this but guy. But wh- where, where were these conversations taking place, bro? When did he... In the prison in his cell. Uh, but how, what was this guard doing? That was his gig? His, that was he, his he, gig. He walked the, the, the outside of Hannibal Lecter's cell? That yeah. He was the guy. Yeah, he's the guy. Okay. And uh, he, even though there's not supposed to talk to him, he gets this guy to talk to him. He's not that he's so much talking to the guard. He's having the guard talk to him. He becomes the listener. And in that list, as you know, in the listening is where the bonding comes in. Well, is there says a lot of similarities to, to uh, uh, this guy, your, your great-granddaddy murder man, uh, <laughs> and, and Hannibal Lecter, the character? I think the author used uh, Holmes as his... Uh, as his uh as his mold for Hannibal Lecter, and I think he did an incredible job. Just and the pure br- brilliance of the man, and just, just... And you guys bringing that up, that image of him in that cell is exactly what I wanted my readers to picture, you know? There we go. Yeah. Um, this is why the book, and Burl, let's talk about that, Let's, let's uh, because I, let's, uh, I don't mind being shamefully plugging for Jeff. No, I don't mind it either. Yeah, let's talk about the it. The book is he... called Bloodstains. Good title, Bloodstains by Jeff Mudgett. There is a website, bloodstainsthebook.com. You can go there, and there's a, was it ABC did a whole uh, report on this. Am I correct? We just finished a documentary about where Holmes was uh, born. It's on my webpage. They did about seven minutes, and uh, uh, fascinating uh, what they did. They did a great job. Is the book available on Kindle and, uh, and I, no, iTunes? Not on, not on Kindle, but it is. It's not. No, oh, you can you can pick it up on Kindle. You can get it on uh, Smashword, oh. iBook, Nook, at Barnes. You can get it anywhere, but in print, you have to buy it at my webpage. Oh, okay. okay. All right. So let's send some folks to the webpage and uh, sell some books today. So you can you can get you, it in all those do formats. You sign, do you sign them on the way out the door? Here, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll tell you what I don't do this often, but I'll tell you what I'll do for you guys. For your listeners, if they buy a book from the from the web page on print, I'll sign one for them. If they just mention they heard about the book on your show. Well, wow, well, chances are right. Usually right. they're too scared to do that because it might ruin their reputation. Yeah, have to stop it, bro. <laughs> Excuse <laughs> me, our reputations are trashed anyways. <laughs> you know, you're lucky, Jeff. We've had several people whose lives have been threatened if they come on the show. Did you know that? Really? 
Yeah, we've had three people, at least, who prior to coming on the show received death threats. Uh, Kenny Gallo, uh, Andrew uh, DiDonato, and... Uh, Vegas Ragdoll, what's her name? Yeah. yeah, but we have never destroyed anything but careers. So well, yeah. we found out. We found out who killed Jimmy Hoffa on this show. Yeah, and, and who killed Martin Luther King. And, and now we're going forward. Who Jack was Jack the Ripper? Ripper. Yeah, we're so, a thousand. We're, we're, we do our best to uh, make our contribution to the true crimes annals. I think you guys are going to be visited by Scotland Yard and the FBI if you keep this up. I hope so because that's a great show. <laughs> We've already been visited by the L.A. police late at night during, yeah. during yeah, what they, was once my portion. <laughs> they came in. Howard also does a, a show later in the evening that I frequently guest star on, thanks to, to Howard called Howard's Portion. And the neighbors, I guess, got a little randy about something. He called the cops. And oh, Howard well. was doing his show, and the cops walked in. Well, I actually imagine I was gone. I uh, slipped out. <laughs> by the time the, the, here's, here's how fast the police react here, Jeff, is that uh, by the time the call went in that there was an excessive amount of noise here in the lounge and you know, we keep things open. It was a, a very, very hot great night and it, people could hear us for miles around apparently. <laughs> apparently. But by the time somebody called the cops to really blow us in until the cops really thought, well, alright, let's get to this one. You know, this is a couple murder cell first and then we'll get to we'll get to the boys up at the Lighten Up Lounge. And it was about an hour and a half. I had already left. And I'm, I'm home uh, two vodkas down. It's about 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm, it's okay. I only live .4 miles from here, all's under control, and I'm listening to the show, and in come the sirens. It was sensational. <laughs> they asked for autographs and went home. Yeah. This is what we go for here on uh, Outlaw Radio, and that's why we wanted you here, and we're glad you're participating. You'll come and visit us if you're in oh, L.A. Great. I would love to. Great. Well, yeah, um, we'd love to have you here in the lounge. At some point in time, uh, our uh, our hero in this, in this uh, plot... Um, finishes his curse and is uh, taking care of all those that he feels has aggrieved him. What does he do after this? Well, he, he, he continues on with his uh, his uh, his past, and it's in the book, a, a chapter that uh, no one believes yet, for obvious reasons, and I wrote about the things he says he did, which are quite amazing, and the people he says he knew and um, I'd really love for your readers to be able to take a look at that. And uh, and um, now, have you been able to check out? Supposedly, he says after he's dead, he uh, bumps off these people, goes to San Francisco, has a good time, lives it up, laughs it up. No, no doubt about it. I uh, we have uh, I've got a fellow working with me on it, and uh, we uh, know that he was in the Bay Area. We know. The hotel he used to like in Port Costa along the Sacramento River, which was one of the great uh, gambling and bordello centers of uh, the Bay Area back uh, after the gold rush and turn of the century. And then um, we know that he used to hang in Vallejo, too, where... Yeah, he hang more great, than once. He was very well hung, as a matter of fact. That's right. Where he uh, <laughs> used to go spy on my great-great-grandmother, the woman that would not divorce him. Now, this is amazing. He was married to your great-great-grandmother. He stooped everything that moved, or they, maybe he stooped them after they stopped moving. But uh, she would not give him a divorce. No, and uh, I don't know what that was all about. Quite frankly, I never got to talk to her or ask her, but uh, she refused. He was on her doorstep with uh, my great-grandfather in her arms, and uh, he asked for a divorce, and she said no. And he didn't kill her? No, he didn't kill her. 
Must have was, had uh, was, she, was she in court when he was convicted? Probably not, right? I doubt it. Yeah, because the other six uh, floozies were there. All right, so, I, uh, so he writes all these diaries. How, um, how does he get the diaries back to the family? Since he's disenfranchised from the actual family you're descended from. I don't, I don't know that. I don't know that. Now, there is a section at the conclusion of the book, which you may be able to pick up something. And before we finish today, I'd really like to state, we've been talking about this horrible monster of a man. And really, for someone that reads the book, I've been getting a lot of comments and reviews about how the ending is such a good ending about how I learned to love my grandfather when I learned what he really did in his life to protect his family from this monster. Well, let's leave let's leave that unturned. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like I'd like a reader to get to yep. that. I always I always tell them, listen, the middle of this book is harsh. It's maybe one of the hardest books you're ever going to be reading. Um, but stick with it because the end you're going to feel good about being a human being, I think, when you come to the conclusion. Okay, careful. Too much. Too was. much. What? All right. All right. All right. All right. Yeah. That's the there we go. Now we There we go. So you got you got to go through hell to get to a little bit of peace. That's all right. There you go. It's going to be. And as uh, we wanted to mention this one thing that uh, we you and I talked about on the phone, we haven't mentioned on the air here, and that is that everyone's responsible for their own sins and their own sins alone. The sins of the father are not visited on the son. Uh, you're not responsible for other people's stuff, and your families get into that. If uh, I've had guys that had letters from. Families of murderers where I write books about, they go, How, why did you change the name? You know, you brought shame on the family. I go, no, I didn't bring shame on your family. This person brought shame on themselves by being a, a killer. You didn't kill these people. You're not the murderer. You know, there isn't that collective well, guilt. You can't feel shame well, for what your great grandma. Well, 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 well Judy is right out of the water. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, here's a guy, Burl and, and, and Mark and, and, and Jeff, yeah, just. We know you're a, a lawyer, correct? X. No, I understand that, but you tra- you were trained as a lawyer, right? Uh, you were you were a member of the bar at some point. I'm standing behind one now. I know you are, and that's as close as you're getting to practicing law. <laughs> that Burl Bear. But uh, and then you, you went on to a great career in, in business, and uh, you love the maritime, correct? Yep. Um, so how how's this you know this journey that you've decided to take? How's how's that how's that going for you? Are you, is, is you happy about it? Uh, scared about it? Uh, Want to do it more? Um, because you know you, you you know all of a sudden came out of nowhere and said I'm gonna I'm gonna do this and it was a obviously a big decision. You made it and how do you feel about it? Well, let's let let me start off by saying that uh, when I when I started this this thing I, I quit my work and uh, I started researching who this thing was. I wanted to see what the truth was, but this. This uh, passion quickly became an obsession, and then, like I told you guys, I uh, I developed epilepsy. Um, some in my family think from this obsession. Uh, my doctors don't agree with that, but uh, that uh, that uh, passion and that you know refusal to stop. Um, I'm I'm glad I did it. Now there was a time when I thought I was going to die from it. And it, that's in the book, but uh, I think maybe uh, now my life's better than it's ever been, just from having you know found out the truth. And I'm going to ask, a, and I'm going to get a bit personal. But did, did were you financially sound to be able to take this turn and quit what you're doing and and go off and let this obsession overtake you? 
Okay, so they don't have to worry about that part. You won't, you won't get rich being an author. I'll well, we all know that. But, it, but nope. this is about something else. Obviously, this is about something else. And, and uh, we're going to find out in the last bit of the book actually what it's really about. Because, I mean, you're, you're going on a journey of self-discovery by discovering what isn't yourself but somebody else. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and guys, it gets into uh, before I took on this journey, I did, was not a believer. I was not a believer in the paranormal. I was not a believer in God, to tell you the truth. I was not a religious man. And after this has been completed, I am, I am a believer now. I do, I do believe in a God, and uh, I think there is something there in this thing that lived on our earth that uh, you've got to give something to that, uh, that possibility. Can I convince you to join the chosen people? Since you seem to be fairly well off, we could use, <laughs> use, a few donations. We could use the cash. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a lot of fun. The holidays are great. You don't have yeah. to eat much. <laughs> yeah, lots of food, though. Always a lot of food. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the book is called Bloodstains. Well, I can't keep hyping this book. Yeah, why not? I, Bloodstains by Jeff Mudgett. It's available, I am happy to say it's available in all formats. It's available in print, available in Kindle, available in Nook, available probably for your Kobe, your Schmoby. Because you can are we winding down? Is this, I don't know. I got, about, I got about uh, three minutes till. Oh, okay. So we're probably right. winding down. Uh, I so should, we can't get into anything heavy at this no, point, but we can make point. sure that when Jeff comes to L.A., he'll... he'll. When you come here, by the way, not only we, do you do our show, then you stick around for the show after, and, and uh, it's just a... A, it, it, a fun fest. It's like it's you, a you think that you've taken a journey uh, trying to find your great daddy, uh, Papa, over there. Yeah. Uh, this is really something. Devil daddy. <laughs> <laughs> we hope to see you. Uh, this was a lot of fun. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Good, good guy. Good guest. Thank you. Thank you very much for being on the show. I've enjoyed uh, the heck out of this. I was going to say hell, but I decided not to go to the book. But I've enjoyed the heck out of this, and I can't wait to do it again with you all. And uh, thank you very much. You're very welcome. And then to all the listeners, make sure you mention uh, us when you buy the book, and Jeff will sign a copy for you. Thank yeah, you, Jeff. Yeah, heck of a deal. I, I promise. Okay. And next week, uh, Howard, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your frame of mind. I'll be in Vegas. So you are. Are you going to be in Vegas? Yeah. Uh, say hi to Denny Griffith while you're there. Um, next week... The Alaska Mail Bomb Conspiracy, which I wrote about for the uh, book Masters of True Crime. Jim Bordenay, U.S. Postal Inspector. And uh, I've been trying to get Luke Gossett Jr., who played the part in the movie. To well, that join was a, us. Lot, was a long time ago, wasn't it? Yeah, that was. Uh, but uh, Jim Bordenay's a great guy. He's, and also, he'll reveal a lot about mail uh, fraud scams. Uh, so it'll be a great show. He's a great, uh, great conversationalist. You'll really enjoy it next week. Anything Jim about female scams? Yeah, female scams and male scams. Speaking of real scam lama ding dongs, Magic Man Allen and the demons of decadence, including myself and Howard and Mark and Sirius Vic and the octopi. All those octopies with their bent tentacles on Wall Street. <laughs>
What's your problem, Howard? Mark C.G. Boyer's here. Hello. Magic Matt Allen's our producer, and he's just, he's under more pressure than an astronaut. But sitting around the Thanksgiving dinner table at the Mudgeon residence, when they bring up great-grandpa, it does give them cause for alarm, because great-grandpa was one of the most notorious serial killers in America's history. Jeff hey, Jeff. Hey, Burl and Howard, it's a pleasure. I've been looking forward to be on your show for a long time. Well, boy, are you going to be disappointed. <laughs> He's not. We're gonna go. We're gonna go on a nice little ride here. That's okay. A, that's we're gonna crank you up there, Jeffrey. Why don't you speak up loud and clear? So you're right. you're growing up in a family where great grandpa was a serial killer. Did this come up in conversation much around the dinner table? Well, no. I didn't know who we were, so to speak, until I was about forty-five. My grandfather had kept it a secret from the entire family, including his wife. Whoa. So I mean, it wasn't like something you were ashamed of all your life. You didn't get ashamed until you were older. No, I was a fairly ordinary, normal man, maybe a little eccentric once in a while, but, uh, you know, I liked to fish, paid my taxes, followed the law, and then one, uh, so, one, night, at, one night at dinner, uh, Grandpa was forced to tell the truth, and uh, all the family was sitting there with jaws dropped and in shock when he learn, said uh, to learn what his life was all about. And your li- the life was? What, what was the truth? Well, the entire family, uh, after the uh, trial of uh, Herman Mudgett, the most evil man that ever lived, I don't think anyone will contest me that, um, he, the whole family had moved from Chicago 
at the turn of the century out to California to escape the stigma. And uh, to, for people who aren't familiar with your lovable uh, great-grandfather, give us a little backstory on, on this guy. Well, he, uh, take it from maybe your most, uh, your, uh, the, 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 the eeriest book you've ever written and then put a, a real man into place. He was uh, a doctor, graduated from the University of Michigan, maybe one of the highest IQs ever recorded there. He uh, taught elementary school. He had a candy store in Chicago. Uh, he built a, a glass-bending factory in order to dispose of the bodies. And he just basically went around life figuring out ways that he could kill more people. Um, I, un, unheard of. I, I, I still, in all my research, haven't found anyone even close. Pretty disgusting fellow. And no one ever talked about it. Now, you and your grandfather, next generation, you and he, uh, Bert, you weren't particularly close with him, were you? Well, if you can imagine, the man the man was an engineer at PG&E in California. He was a brilliant man. Uh, he was not friendly. He talked to me maybe two or three times my entire life. He had decided uh, to seal off all emotion, love, and friendliness, I think. Uh, maybe, maybe afraid of the thoughts that would pop up in his head, as they do all of us once in a while. And uh, instead of uh, showing love... He just did. He just did his thing, his duty, his obligation, and I, I did not like him much at all. How how old was he when his father was convicted? When this whole thing came out and the trial happened, and then he was executed? Well, it was his grandfather. It was oh, my okay, so it's your great. I, I, I kind of lose track. It's your great great grandfather. It's easy to do. The, the the best way for me is to say grandfather's grandfather. So he was not alive at the time of the execution. I think he was born about 1902. Okay. The execution was like 1896. So is he his, he was he, one of the he's, ones he's that, the son of he's he's the son of the son. He's the son of the son, that's right. Okay. And now, he he didn't talk to you. You there was there was no the generations were hardly passed from one to the next. So you were rather surprised when grandpa dies. Now, you weren't surprised that he died, but surprised that when he died, he leaves something to you. He left me uh, some fishing tackle boxes, which, when you read the story, uh, the first part of the book is about how I hated this man that liked to fish, knew I liked to fish, and never invited his grandson along fish on a fishing trip. So when my father, after he died, brought these fishing tackle boxes, which were the only item in his will, and the man was worth a lot of money, um, he had one paragraph, and he said, I want these boxes left to Jeffrey. And he had, you know, seven or eight grandkids and uh, three, two sons. So when he brought these uh, tackle boxes to me, I, I pretty much set them over in the corner of the garage and wasn't, wasn't interested. And one day, don't know why, kicked them over, looked through all his fishing tackle equipment, <clears throat> grew bored quickly with it, tried to put it all back together, and the box wouldn't um, set down properly. Well, in the bottom were some notes and a couple of diaries, and that's what the story's all about. They were the diaries of the killer. Ooh. Now, do you think your grandfather knew they were there? Your great-grandfather. Uh, the story is about the diaries, all right? Well, what I'm asking is, do you think the person who bequeathed you the tackle boxes <coughs> knew the diaries were in there, or did he just forget? No doubt. He knew they were there. He's the one that built the bottom, the secret compartment on the bottom of the... Why, why you, Jeff? That would be the next question, yes. Well, that's, that's why I asked what, that's, 
Yeah, that's what the story is all about. There was, in the end of the, one of the diaries, there is a list of family members. And my grandfather's name was on there. His brother's was not. And my name was in the list. And none of my, not, none of my brother or sisters or my uh, cousins was on the list. So it obviously someone had intended that one day I would have the boxer. Wow. That's that's just bizarre. So what's the clue? Why uh, why did you win the prize? That's that's. <laughs> and and it may be in the book and all that. And and, and Jeff, we're going to sell your book. Don't worry about it. So, but I, I just love hearing the story. And then that the people will go and buy this book, because which is called Blood Stays, by the way. You got to read this book. The killer intended me to be the next, as he had been the next from his great great grandfather. And that's what the story's all about, trying to figure out why, if there is an evil species in our race, and was I part of it? And it certainly seemed like uh, I had the credentials with uh, this man as my uh, my ancestor. Well, Joe, genetically, you've got the credentials. What? Uh, let's think back over 45 years before you, you know, the bingo, you know? Is this like a, you, a, a, th- a virus that lays dormant? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, did you see anything coming? I mean, were you just you just leading a normal life, wondering, well, torturing flies and my, small my, my invertebrates? Well, are you answering well, I, the question? I get, in, okay, I get into that, and I explain that while I was a moral man, I had a uh, maybe a lack of emotion. I had uh, maybe needed uh, help with uh, love and things like that. Um, I had thoughts that would pop into my head that, quite frankly, I think all men do, and I just wrote them off as the thing all, all men have. Well, once you learn this is in your background, those haunts, those, those thoughts start to haunt you. All of a sudden, when you think about hurting someone or, or uh, anger or jealousy, those things change, and they take on a different aspect. And soon, uh, you don't know which way uh, your life is going anymore, and that's. You start to read to into things. You start to read into things that previously you wouldn't pay that much attention to. How, you start how, putting more significance on them. How, how close did you ever exactly. get to hurting anybody, Jeff? Uh, I've been in, played football. I've been in fights. I uh, I never took a knife or a gun to anyone. I have thought about it, which was what I was trying to bring up, What I, which is something I imagine all men have at one time in their yeah, life. Yeah, I had that a half an hour ago. <laughs> no, but, you know, I was in traffic. Well, the, I, the idea is you keep it in the realm of fantasy. The thing with serial killers or killers is that once they cross that line, the line has been crossed. Then you can just keep on, keep on doing it. That's, that's exactly the point, then. Uh, things that... Uh, uh, you would have uh, written off before. Now you start think, wondering if you need to go to a therapist to maybe uh, have them cleansed from your soul. Did you? Yes, I did. So it reached that point. Let's go back a little bit here. You, you just get these diaries. You open them up. You start reading them. In the book, Bloodstains by Jeff Mudgett, you have actual excerpts and portions of this diary. And I got to say, it is absolutely mind-boggling and compelling to read this guy's diary. The guy is obviously brilliant. I mean, his IQ just shines off of the what he says and how he does it, but the guy is terminally twisted. <laughs> there, 
<laughs> really way twisted. Off, way off the charts. Way off the charts. And I, I had the uh, the feeling that he actually brought it down a little when he wanted someone to understand him even. Well, I, he, was, I, he was way out. He, he invented some anesthesia in the 19th century. He was in hormonal science before anyone else even knew what it was. He was looking into longevity, trying to figure out how he could live forever. This was the true Dr. Frankenstein, let me tell you. What um, I found it interesting that um, that he had a calculated uh, death, an opportunist death at the same time. I found that an interesting dichotomy with the individual. Um, you know what? Explain explain that a little more to me. I well, that. I mean, um, he at one point he is on the run. He convinces uh, his, um, uh, I guess, his right hand man, who is more of a henchman than anything else, convinces the guy's wife to get to lend him some of their children as he goes on this cross country odyssey, and ends up killing the kids because they were uh, they were convenient. Uh, mechanism for uh, manipulating the wife. And cut down on the hotel room. Yeah. yeah. You're bringing up the story about when he murdered the children in Indiana, right? Yeah, right. but that, uh, that seems more opportunistic than when, than the uh, the premeditation he put together when he built his little castle. I, I think everything was premeditated. If you had to ask me, if you gave me the chance to research any action he did, it was all premeditated, all logical, and it all had a reason that benefited him personally. And what was the reason? I don't know. I don't know. I, there's no, that's why I told you earlier there's so many mysteries about yeah. this man that still exist that are just popping. I have a Facebook page, the Blood Saints Facebook page. Every day, someone from around the country gives me another fact I didn't know, and it's just amazing stuff coming in. What's the address of that page? How do we get there? Just Facebook? Bloodstains. Just Bloodstains. Facebook, right? That's the, the, the professional uh, page, and we, uh, we, we submit things about the Jack the Ripper connection every day. We submit things. Um, incredible stuff, and it's uh, just uh, a lot of fun to stay on top of it and uh, have everyone join in. We haven't even made the jump to Jack the Ripper. Why don't we do that? Well, that's that's, uh, I'm, and I'll tell you, we'll, we'll start off with uh, when I when I put that in the book, I had a couple of very famous authors who uh, want to remain remain anonymous. That uh, they told me, don't do it. It's going to be the worst thing you ever did in your life. They had done it, and there is an anger, this thing from people who want to fight anyone that says they think they know who Jack the Ripper was, and I. I quite frankly didn't believe it, and I'm starting to see Now you're starting through. to believe it, yeah. Oh, I'm believing it. And uh, so every day I get beat up on uh, on the facts. But here, here's what happened. When I knew what ship he rode over on from New York to London, it was a canard line called the Etruria. He loved London. He loved Paris. He had a lot of money. He used to go spend it like uh, like it was just going out of style. He so always it was, do it was, do it was money. It was do whose money was it? Was it his doctor money or did it was it his con man money? No. He used to sell skeletons to medical schools around the country. His were known, you'll love this, as the most pristine for obvious reasons. So all these doctors in our country were learning from the murdered skeletons. Oh, so they, it was, all this was was about inventory. Yes, and... Merchant licensing. <laughs> and he did life insurance. He made a fortune in life insurance. He was making 2 or $3 million a year, turn of the century. Now think how That's much a lot money of money. that is today. 
So That's he, a lot he was, of money. He, he was out there spending it as fast as he could make it. So he's so on the he's on the canard line. He's heading over to London. Go ahead. I knew he was over there. I knew he tried to sell skeletons to the University of London Medical School. There are archives over there showing that an American surgeon had been there trying to sell skeletons. I knew that he had wanted to um, just just the things in the diaries about. He didn't mention murdering and there, but I also knew anyone any time he went anywhere for an extended period of time, he killed people. I also knew that uh, from studying the autopsy reports on the first two or three murder, uh, Ripper murders, that the pathologist had said, listen, there's no way someone could have removed these organs in four or five minutes in the dark without damaging other organs of the human body without having been a surgeon. So that, that kind of raised the curiosity in my head. I put it in the book, but I thought, you know, this is something we need to look into. This may be the round peg in the round hole. Well, about two months after I published the book, I get a uh, contact from a fellow named Mark Potts, who has been researching Holmes being the Ripper for about five years. He gives me the handwriting comparisons between the Ripper letters and what Holmes wrote while he was in prison awaiting execution. Well, when you look at them, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not an expert, they look the same. Well, he sent it to the British Library. British Library gave him an expert, a woman with the credentials a mile long, and she agreed to compare them. Well, about six weeks ago, she came back with a conclusion that said they're the same. So this is hot off the presses, this news. It's, it's right now, and we're, uh, like I said, we're getting beat up all over it right now. And what we've, what we've done now is the state, if the handwriting is close, let's take the stamp off one of the envelopes the Dear Boss letter envelope. It's a lick and stick. Let's do a DNA. Well, we found out Patricia Cromwell had already had it done. The data is available. So now we need to get the DNA from Holmes or someone in his family. How about you? I've already, I've already offered tissue. And let's compare what's on the back of the stamp. Well, as you imagine, the naysayers come back and say, well, that doesn't prove that he was the killer. Okay, but it does prove he was there in London. He was there at the time. He was interested in events. And for someone to state that Holmes wouldn't have killed two or three of the prostitutes in London while he was there seems like they're pushing it a little too far for me, away from maybe scratching the head and thinking, you know, let's try to prove that it is him. Uh, Where the, uh, were the, were the, the Ripper prostitutes belongs? One more time? Were the were the London or the Ripper prostitutes were they blonde? Blonde. I don't. I don't think they were. As a matter of fact, I know they weren't. The pictures that I've seen. Because it's interesting that apparently um, the women that uh, your ancestor stalked and brought to his castle were mostly blondes. I did not uh, know that before, and but I'll take your word for it. I have a question for you. There may be uh, you know the answer. Maybe you don't. Regarding on the Jack the Ripper. Uh, and the reason I'm th- thinking of this is that in the Green River killings up in the Seattle area, there was more than one person killing people and dumping them in that area, but the modus operandi wasn't the same. You had more than one person killing people, but not all of them were the Green River killer. Were the Jack the Ripper killers, were all of the, the women who had their ovaries removed, or were there other, or were there, there inconsistencies in the killings? Uh, 
No, and that's an excellent question. And if you read Scotland Yard's own book about the Ripper, where Scotland Yard investigates, I think is the title, they've long thought there was a couple copycats after the first two or three. That it wasn't necessarily the same man all five. During the during during the time, we have to, we have to take a sixty second break while we have to sharpen our scalpels. <laughs> we'll be right back with Jeff Mudgett, author of Bloodstains, True Story. We'll be back in 60 seconds on True Crime Uncensored. There are some things in life that just don't go together. But listen to this. You take one drop-dead gorgeous woman. You add an incredibly wealthy, handsome man. You put them together. They have all the money, clothes, jewels, drugs, alcohol they could possibly want. Well, then you throw in a Glock 9mm handgun. It's all good fun until someone gets killed. Fatal Beauty, the shocking true story of beautiful Rhonda Glover, who put 13 bullets from a Glock 9mm into her boyfriend of 15 years, Jimmy Jost. Oh, she said he was abusive. The friend said he was passive. Either way, he was dead. Fatal Beauty, available January 2011 from Pinnacle True Crime by Burl Bear, living legend, true crime author, and trust me, he's brilliant, I know it, because I am Burl Bear, author of Fatal Beauty. If you own an iPhone or ride a plastic pony in front of Albertsons, you are no longer tied to your computer. You are now free to roam while Barstow's burning and take Outlaw Radio with you everywhere you go. Grab an Outlaw Radio iPhone application, the smoking, drinking, interrupting 24-hour party that you follow now follows you. Your iPhone is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends at Outlaw Radio. Change the way you listen to the radio seven days a week. Now available in the iTunes App Store. Back to True Crime Uncensored with Burl Bear and Howard Lapidus. And featuring Mark <laughs> C.G. Boyer and sometimes Marie Mackey Esquire. Esquire, no less. Produced by Magic Matt Allen. Produced by Magic Matthew Allen. Oh, sorry. Who in turn is produced by Lori Downey Jr. And now, some of the aforementioned True Crime Uncensored. Our guest today, Jeff Mudgett, author of the fabulous new book, Bloodstains. Got a look into this guy's eyes. Right on the cover of the book, you'll get this book. And there's a close-up of the eyes of this guy who was one of the worst serial killers in American history. And a quote from him, I was born with the devil in me, and he has been with me ever since. Guy's a real pain in the ass. Not Jeff, but his ancestor. Thank you. <laughs> uh, this great... Great, great grandfather, uh, Daddy Batty over here. Um, if I was Nancy Grace, that's what I'd be calling. <laughs> the Batty Daddy. Yeah, she comes up with these uh, tot mom things. Uh, she likes to brand people. But let's say that you know, I mean, the, the school's still out on whether he's Jack the Ripper. And, and doesn't Jeff? Doesn't it, it? It rides kind of on the DNA. And when when will we know? You know, and quite frankly, um, I've gotten to the point where I, I tell all my readers. What does it matter? Let's let's let the experts have it now. I've, I've given them a roadmap. They can decide whether they want to determine if Holmes is Jack the Ripper. Exactly. I've, done, I've done enough telling the world, hey, here's something you might want to consider. Because basically, him killing two or three prostitutes in London 
pales in comparison to the hundreds, maybe thousands he killed here in the States with a building called the Murder Factory. That's uh, that, that's what I think we should be focusing on because we'll look if it comes back that his DNA says he's dragged Jack the Ripper and we find that out that's a headline and that's another book you get to write because you're his great 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 grandson uh, you know along with other people that may want to choose to do it but you be a descendant wouldn't that be something but that's that's the subject and topic of something else what I think is really just plain fascinating is this the story of you finding. The diaries, and then what the, your personal journey, and I think that uh, you know that is what the book's about, and it's the uncovering uh, in your own mind, and and in the mind, I guess, of the rest. Didn't you? Did you open the door to the rest of the family to what was going on here? Well, how did you do that? How do you, you sit everybody down? It's not like kind of coming out and going, "Hey, I'm gay." No, hey, uh, <laughs> Grandpa <laughs> knocked off about two hundred that we know of. You know. Yeah, that's yeah, that's the real alternative lifestyle. Um, um, you know, at first, uh, my father wouldn't talk to me. You know, m- mom being mom, she was behind me the whole way. But the rest of the family was terribly upset. And I had to sit them all down and say, you know what? Um, I don't want to run away from this anymore like the family's done. If this is the truth about us, I want to come out and state it. If for no other reason that it's our duty and obligation to the people that he killed and and that's that's was my position I took with the family. And you know what? They've all come around. They're all fine with it, and they're all on my side now. And uh, is your dad uh, still with us? Oh yeah, my dad's oh, he's eight oh. years old, strong, strong as hell. Okay, so and he's come around. Yeah, he's uh, all on my side. He goes to some of my readings and uh, with me and a couple well, of conferences, nice. and uh, so okay. we're fine. Now, what about families of people that? The daddy baddie killer did. God, you're doing it now. Aren't I you? love it. Yeah. <laughs> what What about the family members of people he killed? Are they, are they finding you? Or you know, I mean, do descendants of the the dead people? You're the first that's ever asked me that, and uh, it's quite amazing to me. I've had two women come to me and say that they think that Holmes killed members of their family, and that they are a hundred percent behind me in telling the truth about this evil thing and they and they're enjoying it and uh and uh, they were uh uh you know they took my breath away it was an amazing um, conversation so are you you're able to vet them out and and do you think it's it's real or are they just uh, are they could they they could be uh, groupies to so to speak you ever uh, seen all the groupies howard yes i have I, I, and i mean that in in the nicest of ways <laughs> Author groupies look like Jessica Fletcher. There you are. You know, I, I didn't research whether they were real. I took their word for it, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't I don't really think a good, honest person would lie about something like that. Yeah, they how do you do that? that? They I, might have it wrong. But, I'm with uh, you. I'm with you. I just, I just yeah. wanted to ask. Along, because, the, along the same lines, uh, your, uh, your great-grandfather sired uh, num- uh, children with other women besides your uh, his. Uh, original wife, uh, have you had contact with any of your half-siblings or any no, relatives? No, I haven't, but you're right. He had hundreds of women. He was uh, promiscuous to the core, a charmer, had movie star looks, and uh, when he was, uh, the jury came back on his trial, just to give you an example of what women would give to him, he had six of his lovers in the uh, audience. The jury found him guilty. He was uh, condemned to death. As they walked him away, the six women, as reported by the New York Times on their article that day, were crying in the audience. And they knew who and what he was. 
So even though they knew he was a vicious killer, they cried when he was found guilty. Hey, guys, good is good. What can I tell you? Yeah. <laughs> Always remember that. Yeah. So, uh, That's what the New York Times said, anyway. Mm -hmm. yeah. And before Viagra, no kidding. Yeah. But how old was he then? He, he, wasn't, he was in his late 30s, wasn't he? Oh, well, he was born in 1861. Okay, and this was... He was, he, he was executed? At, well, supposedly executed. Supposedly executed about 1895, 96. My memory has escaped me on dates. But Help me with there. the math on that. So what do you well, because the thing is, is the diary that he finds goes goes up to the execution, through the execution, and beyond the execution. Yeah, we'll get to that in a second. But but is the birth, or, sorry, the death certificate reads how old he, how was he? How old was he about? Well, he, he would have had to have been uh, 35. Yeah, that which is fairly young. Yeah. Fairly young for a br brilliant guy killing how many people a year? You got to figure. 61 and 96, yeah. Yeah, 60. Well, how what's that? It says 61 to 96. Yeah, so what is that? Uh, help me out. You're the accountant. 35. 35. So that that's that's a lot of uh, a lot of death to squeeze into a short time. Yeah, but you don't know when he really started. Well, he didn't start when he was 10. You don't know that. You don't know that. Uh, Probably well, started in puberty. Guy, this guy was, when he was 10, when he was 10, I'm sorry, go ahead. Let me give you a shock here. He started when he was 13. There you go. Wow. There you go. <clears throat> you know, what, and once you do it, you know, uh, Brent Turvey, who's kind of an expert on this sort of stuff, was asked, what's the deep, you know, deep thing on these serial killers? What is the, the real deal on why they do it? And he says, it's kind of like going to a Chinese restaurant. They tried it. They liked it. They did it again. You know, once you do it, and two hours later, you got to do it again. Yeah. Well, the dim sum was good. Well, uh, there you go. Yeah, because once you cross the line, it's crossed. We we kid uh, we we kid the serial killers. <laughs> Not that there's anything vastly amusing right. about them, but what else can you do? But Jeff's got a sense of humor, so right. he's... one of the, one of the most infamous aspects of this individual was uh, his deliberate. Uh, calculated construction of a hotel near the uh, what the World's Fair was it? Well, let's talk about that, Jeff. And he built this place in a specific manner. I I just gave a talk at a conference in Chicago on this, and to me, it's the most incredible thing of all. Here's a man that knew the World's Fair was coming. He knew there was going to be five hundred thousand people there at any one you know uh over a month or a year i actually the numbers escaped me but he knew 40 to fifty thousand would have to come through on the railroad tracks a day to see this bear they would come from all over the world they were young women that came from around the country around the world that no one knew where they were going to be he was like a lion on the plains of africa waiting for antelope to come so what he did was he figured out the transportation system of Chicago, found out where the train junction was. They called it a Junction Grove. He bought a piece of property there, and he started building the murder castle. Of course, he didn't call it that. It was no, the that would be Fair poor, poor PR. Yeah, the World Fair Hotel. It's tough to get permits on that too, by the way. Just, yeah. And he had a pharmacy on the first floor, a hotel on the second floor, and the basement was a torture was a torture chamber. Oh. And um, can hear the from the ground up. I don't think it's ever been something like this, maybe in the history of man before. Well, it, there's lots of elements of, of uh, Sweeney Todd. Uh, you know, shoots for the bodies to go down so he doesn't have to carry them through the hallways. Everything you can imagine. He had control panels in his office to send gas to rooms. 
he had, uh, like you say, the chutes that would send them grease chutes down to the to the basement where they would land on a gurney. His assistant would strap them to the table and prepare them for surgery later that night. Here's a woman that just walked in and had a hotel room given to her. How many how many people were involved with him? Uh, you know, what kind of a group did he have going? It was it, this wasn't. I would be guessing, but I knew he always had one or two assistants with him. He had that ability to hypnotize and just empower, I guess, weak, uh, weak-minded individuals, and uh, they would stick, stick with him till, uh, till uh, he uh, either let them go or he killed them. I guess, but uh, I don't know exactly. But he got it. Uh, you know, you finished. This is a guy who finishes yeah. probably finished medical school in his mid twenties, right? And then started surgery in his mid to upper twenties, uh, and now he's killing like a madman, building hotels, uh, uh, selling, you know, all, doing all kinds of things, uh, and getting away with it. Wow, uh, just fascinating. That I mean, to talk more if if you can. Tell me more about that that hotel and and how long that. It was just for the, the time of the World's Fair that he really operated out of there, or was it over a, a greater period of time? No, it lasted, it lasted longer. Obviously, when he was arrested, the police figured out what it was. They took a trip down into the uh, basement and discovered the acid bath, the uh, urns to, to uh, dispose of the human waste. and, and um, it Didn't, uh, Jeff, didn't people, you know, you check in and you don't, Come out, yeah, like Hotel, Hotel California. California. You know, it's uh, doesn't somebody go? You know, I, my mom and dad were at this hotel in Chicago, and I haven't heard from them in about three years. Uh, you know, I, I guess back then it wasn't obviously it wouldn't work these days. Thank God. Right. But back then, with the World's Fair there and people coming from all over, excited and uh, you know not not having an internet, not having a BlackBerry, it, maybe it wasn't that hard for him to uh, do away with uh, lost souls. Wow. Uh, Benjamin Petzold was his main uh, accomplice at this time frame. That's right, Benjamin Petzold. You're going to write the book. And, <laughs> and uh, this, is the, this is the uh, family that he um, eviscerates as he tries to escape across the you, country. Use smaller words. You see, we're not as smart as the great um, He needs to pull out the roots. He used this man's family as a shield and used them and their children and the wife um, to uh, as they traveled around the country trying to get away from the police, he used them as the shield to keep the police at bay. Good. So you'll put that in your book, and we'll have you on the show. <laughs> you know, there's some there's some great books already, guys, about him. The Devil in the White City. Is yeah, that's three, a fabulous, million, fabulous three million, book. Three million copies. You have the Torture Doctor and Deranged. So there's some great pieces out there, and I think DiCaprio bought the rights to Devil in the White City, and they're making a movie of it right now. Yeah. He'll play. Uh, he'll he'll play uh, uh, granddaddy, uh, daddy over there. Uh, from what I understand, DiCaprio wants to play Holmes. It'd be good. Yeah, it'd be good. There's a picture of him in Wikipedia. So if you kind of uh, take a look at that and uh, and then think of well, DiCaprio, a great great picture possible. right on the cover of Bloodstains, the uh, the book by Jeff Mudges that we're talking about. A nice close up of the eyes. In fact, you start the book by saying, "Hey, before you go any further." Take the cover of this book and look into this man's eyes and realize who it is we're talking about. Here. I thought that was Jeff. <laughs> no, that this isn't no, Jeff. I this know is... <laughs> that I'm kidding. Jeff is what I'm doing. Jeff is in color. This guy's in black and white. Yeah. Now, now one of the contentious parts here, and I find this. Mark and I were talking about this in the car on the way to the show today. 
The diaries are incredible and go up to his own execution and then keep on going. Yeah, here we go. Let's go. <laughs> Let's go. Yeah. Let's go uh, this is like, this is like, uh, what it reminded me of is I saw the movie Curse of Frankenstein with Peter Cushing where he's telling the whole story of, you know, his nightmare and then he goes up to get hung or decapitated or whatever and then it ends and then the next movie Revenge of Frankenstein shows that he didn't really die on the gallows. <laughs> his buddy, now, Tell us how he orchestrates not being killed at his execution. All right, and let me start by stating this. I cannot prove he was not hung on the gallows that day. It is my conjecture and belief from my research that he was not, that his guard was hung in his place. Now, now in the diary, if this diary is real, which there's no reason to doubt it, uh, he's your guy doesn't write as a diary and then keep writing it after he's dead. So <laughs> we got to take his word for it here. Well, but there's many people who say they could have been forged. They're um, they're not true. They're not his. That that's fine. That's why I called the book fiction based on a true story. One of the great things about this story, me being able to tell it like I did, was every step of the way I have the opportunity in the future to have facts proven, like we're doing with the Ripper now and the DNA and the handwriting analysis. Next, we get to go to where he was buried. They say he was buried in Philadelphia in concrete. But let, let's go back. Let's step back a little bit. So he was arrested, right? Yeah. He was put on trial. One of the greatest trials in American history. They, he fired his lawyers. Here's, here's this, this brilliant mind. Of course he, fired he his fires lawyers. his lawyers. He's a serial killer. Well, he's also damn smart. He, he yeah. fired his lawyers. He, de he does all the argument himself in court. They still use some of his methods in moot court to train our lawyers today. Like what? The way he argued, the, 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 his methods and his strategies. They were, they just, you, you read, in the book, I, I've put a couple of quotes in there from um, the New York Times reporters about how the, the, the lawyers there just thought he was unbelievable. So this trial goes on. There's, every day there's a new article in all the papers. That every reporter, every major reporter is there in the audience. And, um... Unfortunately, well, fortunately, unfortunately for him, he's found guilty. He's he's condemned to be hung until dead. He writes about, and this is in his memoirs, which are in the Library of Congress. You have to go in, you have to get permission, you got to put on gloves. There's one edition left, and you go in and read his memoirs. He writes about his appearance changing that he's starting to look like the devil with pointy ears and, and, a, and a chin with a point in these eyes. And these, these reporters are writing about what he says every day in, in the papers. He starts having the guard come in and be his friend, even though they're all ordered not to talk to this man. See, the judge knew that he was a master hypnotist. They were ordered not to talk to him. Well, he gets over that. So my book writes about him paying the judge a charitable donation that he was to be allowed hung with a hood over his head. Now, now, scratch your head and think about that for a second, right? He then gets to hire Pinkerton Guards, the famous detective agency. As the body comes off the gallows, it's put into a coffin and filled with concrete right there. And this is all documented. He's the Pinkerton guards have a mule team which drag this concrete-filled coffin to the cemetery. The cemetery has a hole waiting for it. The, the, 
the coffin's laid in, that's filled with concrete. Now tell me, when have you heard of that ever being done before? Never. Okay, now when you know this man, he didn't believe in God one iota. He wouldn't have cared about his body after death. I, I swear, that wouldn't have been his concern. He would have known they were just carbon. He knew that if someone dug up the grave and they determined it wasn't him, they would have had the greatest manhunt in America since Wilkes Booth and the Lincoln assassination. And the cops would have found him and put a bullet in his head right then. He knew he had to do something about that. He did the concrete. Then, when you read the book after that, the papers talk about this Holmes curse that occurred after for 20 years. Anyone who was involved in the arrest, the trial, or the execution that ticked him off was either dead or had a terrible misfortune in their life. Too many numbers to be just a coincidence. So I write about, it's my belief that it wasn't him that was hung. It's not him in that concrete. And he was the one that visited all those people afterwards. And killed him. To kill him or, or yeah, to well, that's, that's what talk it says about, in his diary. Hey, Jeff, talk about the switch. How did he make the... That's fascinating how he made the switch. I know that he may have hypnotized the Pinkerton guard, but then... How did, he, how did he get the rope around the guy's neck? I mean, at what point was... Well, he was, well, he, walked, he was walked up. When you read the book, you'll see that the papers all talk about the appearance of him and the guard. And they talk about the similarities. And then they talk about the hood over his head. And laying... When, I'd, I've never been witness to one, but what I understand is, is that in a hanging, the, body, the head is so ruptured from the strain of the rope... There's no chance of recognizing a man's face after that. Uh, that's what I understand. And so, he, he would have known that. He would have known that. Yeah. And it's my belief that it's not him. And like I stated at the last page of the book, listen, let's let's dig that thing up. I mean, no one cares about this man. No one's going to give a, a, a damn about him being you know, raised from the dead. Let's dig him up. Let's break that concrete open. And let's run a DNA test on what's on what's left. We'll all, we'll also get to solve the Jack the Ripper crime right there too. He did know how to build a concrete something. He was good. He was a good construction man. Well, according to his according to his own diary, which you fell into possession of, he manages to lure this uh, prison guard, and you changed his name for legal reasons so the family wouldn't uh, come after you. Which I guess they they could, but yeah, um, who needs that aggravation? Who needs that aggravation? Right. That he and gradually, because this guy was a consummate, knew how to manipulate people. He becomes a great listener, and he engages his fellow in conversation and listens to the story of this guy. But guy's wh- where life. was the, where were the conversations taking place, bro? When did he in the prison in his cell? But how, what was this guard doing? That was his gig. His, that was his he, gig. He walked the, the outside of Hannibal Lecter's cell. That yeah. he was the guy. Yeah, he's the guy. Okay. And uh, he, even though there's not supposed to talk to him, he gets this guy to talk to him. He's not that he's so much talking to the guard. He's having the guard talk to him. He becomes the listener, and in that list, as you know, in the listening is where the bonding comes in. Well, is there says a lot of similarities to, to uh, uh, this guy, your, your great granddaddy, murder man, uh, <laughs> and and Hannibal Lecter, the character? I think the author used uh, Holmes as his uh, as his uh, as his mold for Hannibal Lecter, and I think he did an incredible job. Just and the pure I, br- brilliance of the man, and just just 
and you guys bringing that up, that image of him in that cell is exactly what I wanted my readers to picture, you know? There we go. Yeah. Um, this is why the book and Burl, let's talk about that. Let's let's uh, because uh, let's, uh, I don't mind being shamefully plugging for Jeff. No, I don't mind it either. Yeah, let's talk about the it. The book is he... called Bloodstains. Good title, Bloodstains by Jeff Mudgett. There is a website, bloodstainsthebook.com. You can go there and there's uh, was it ABC did a whole uh, report on this. Am I correct? We just finished a documentary about where Holmes was uh, born. It's on my webpage. So they did about seven minutes, and uh, uh, fascinating uh, what they did. They did a great job. Is the book available on Kindle and, uh, and I- not, iTunes? Not on not on Kindle, but it is. It's not. No, you can you can pick it up on Kindle. You can get it on uh, Smashword, oh. iBook, Nook, at Barnes. You can get it anywhere, but in print, you have to buy it at my webpage. Oh, okay. okay. All right. So let's send some folks to the webpage and uh, sell some books today. So you can you can get it in all those do you formats. Sign, do you sign them on the way out the door? Here, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll tell you what I don't do this often, but I'll tell you what I'll do for you guys. For your listeners, if they buy a book from the from the web page on print, I'll sign one for them. If they just mention they heard about the book on your show, well, wow, chances all of that. Right. Usually they're too scared to do that because it might ruin their reputation. They have to stop it, bro. <laughs> Excuse me, our reputations are trashed anyways. <laughs> you know, you're lucky, Jeff. We've had several people whose lives have been threatened if they come on the show. Did you know that? Really? Yeah, we've had three people, at least, who prior to coming on the show received death threats. Uh, Kenny Gallo, uh, Andrew uh, DiDonato, and... uh, Vegas Ragdoll, what's her name? Yeah. yeah, but we have never destroyed anything but careers. So well, yeah. we found out. We found out who killed Jimmy Hoffa on this show. Yeah, and, and who killed uh, Martin Luther King. And, and now we're going forward. Who was Jack the Ripper? We're so batting a thousand. We're, we're, we do our best to uh, make our contribution to the true crimes annals. I think you guys are going to be visited by Scotland Yard and the FBI if you keep this up. I hope so, because that's a great show. (laughs) (laughs) We've already been visited by the L.A. police late at night during during what was once my portion. (laughs) (laughs) They came in. Howard also does a a show later in the evening that I frequently guest star on, thanks to to Howard called Howard's Portion. And the neighbors, I guess, got a little randy about something. He called the cops. And Howard was doing his show, and the cops walked in. I actually imagine I was gone. I uh, slipped out. By the time the they, here's here's how fast the police react here, Jeff, is that uh, by the time the call went in that there was an excessive amount of noise here in the lounge, and you know we keep things open. It was a, a very very hot, great night, and it, people could hear us for miles around. Apparently, <laughs> apparently, but by the time somebody called the cops to really blow us in, until the cops really thought, well, all right, let's get to this one. You know, this is a couple murder cell first, and then we'll get to we'll get to the boys up at the light and up. Loud. And it was about an hour and a half. I had already left. And I'm I'm home. Uh, two vodkas down. It's about two o'clock in the morning. I'm. It's okay. I only live point four miles from here. All's under control. And I'm listening to the show. And in come the sirens. It was sensational. This they asked what, for autographs is, and went home. This is what we go for here on uh, Outlaw Radio, and that's why we wanted you here. And we're glad you're participating. You'll come and visit us if you're in oh, L.A. I would love to. Great. Yeah, um, we'd love to have you here in the lounge. At some point in time, uh, our uh, our hero in this in this uh, plot um, finishes his curse and is uh, taking care of all those that he feels has aggrieved him. What does he do after this? Well, he he, he continues on with his uh, his. Uh, 
his past, and it's in the book, a, a chapter that uh, no one believes yet, for obvious reasons, and I wrote about the things he says he did, which are quite amazing, and the people he says he knew, and um, I'd really love for your readers to be able to take a look at that, and... Uh, and, um, now, have you been able to check out, supposedly, he says after he's dead, he uh, bumps off these people, goes to San Francisco, has a good time, lives it up, laughs it up? No no doubt about it. I, uh, we have, uh, I've got a fellow working with me on it, and uh, we uh, know that he was in the Bay Area. We know the hotel he used to like in Port Costa along the Sacramento River, which was one of the great... Uh, gambling and bordello centers of uh, the Bay Area back uh, after the gold rush in the turn of the century. And then um, we know that he used to hang in Vallejo, too, where... Yeah, he hanged more than once. He was very well hung, as a matter of fact. That's right. Where he uh, <laughs> used to go spy on my great-great-grandmother, the woman that would not divorce him. Now, this is amazing. He was married to your great-great-grandmother. He stooped everything that moved, or they, maybe he stooped them after they stopped moving, but uh, she would not give him a divorce. No, and uh, I don't know what that was all about. Quite frankly, I never got to talk to her or ask her, but uh, she refused. He was on her doorstep with uh, my great grandfather in her arms, and uh, he asked for a divorce, and she said no. And he didn't kill her. No, he didn't kill her. Must have was, had. Uh, was, she, was she in court when he was convicted? Probably not. Right? I doubt it. Yeah, because the other six uh, floozies were there. All right, so, I, uh, so he writes all these diaries. How um, how does he get the diaries back to the family, since he's disenfranchised from the actual family you're descended from? I don't I don't know that. I don't know that. Now there is a section at the conclusion of the book which you may be able to pick up something. And before we finish today, I'd really like to state we've been talking about this horrible monster of a man. And really, for someone that reads the book, I've been getting a lot of comments and reviews about how the ending is such a good ending about how I learned to love my grandfather when I learned what he really did in his life to protect his family from this monster. Well, let's leave let's leave that unturned. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like I'd like a reader to get to yep. that. I always I always tell them, listen, the middle of this book is harsh. It's maybe one of the hardest books you're ever going to be reading. Um, but stick with it because the end you're going to feel good about being a human being, I think, when you come to the conclusion. Okay, careful. Too much. Was. Too much. Whoop. All right. All right. All right. That's yeah. the there we go. Now we There we go. So you got you got to go through hell to get to a little bit of peace. That's all right. There you go. We wanted to mention this well, one thing that uh, we and I talked about on the phone we haven't mentioned on the air here, and that is that uh, everyone's responsible for their own sins and their own sins alone. The sins of the father are not visited on the son. Uh, you're not responsible for other people's stuff, and your families get into that. If uh, I've had guys, I had letters from families of murderers where I write books about they go, how, why did you change the name? You know, you brought shame on the family. Go, no, I didn't bring shame on your family. This person brought shame on themselves by being a, a killer. You didn't kill these people. You're not the murderer. You know, there isn't that collective well, guilt. You can't feel shame well, for would, your great-grandma. Well, 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 Judaism right out of the water. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, here's a guy, Burl and, and, and Mark and, and, and Jeff, you know, just... We know you're a, a lawyer, correct? X. No, I understand that, but you tra- you were trained as a lawyer. Right. Uh, you, were, you were a member of the bar at some point. I'm standing behind one now. I know you are, and that's as close as you're getting to practicing law. 
at Burl Bear. But uh, and then you, you went on to a great career in, in business, and uh, you love the maritime, correct? Yep. Um, so how how's this you know this journey that you've decided to take? How's how's that how's that going for you? Is, is they happy about it? Uh, scared about it? Uh, Want to do it more? Um, because you know you, you you know all of a sudden came out of nowhere and said I'm gonna I'm gonna do this and it was a obviously a big decision you made it and how do you feel about it? Well, let's let let me start off by saying that uh, when I when I started this this thing I, I quit my work and uh, I started researching who this thing was I wanted to see what the truth was but this this uh, passion quickly became an obsession and then like I told you guys I uh, I developed epilepsy. Um, some in my family think from this obsession. Uh, my doctors don't agree with that, but uh, that uh, that uh, passion and that you know refusal to stop. Um, I'm I'm glad I did it. Now there was a time when I thought I was going to die from it, and it, that's in the book. But uh, I think maybe uh, now my life's better than it's ever been, just from having. I'm going to ask, a, and I'm going to get a bit personal. But did, did were you financially sound to be able to take this turn and quit what you're doing and and go off and let this obsession overtake you? Yes, I was. Okay, so they don't have to worry about that part. You won't, you won't get rich being an author. I'll well, we all know that. But, it, but nope. this is about something else. Obviously, this is about something else. And, and uh, we're going to find out in the last bit of the book actually what it's really about. Because, I mean, you're, you're going on a journey of self-discovery by discovering what isn't yourself but somebody else. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and guys, it gets into uh, before I took on this journey, I did, was not a believer. I was not a believer in the paranormal. I was not a believer in God, to tell you the truth. I was not a religious man. And after this has been completed, I am, I am a believer now. I do, I do believe in a God, and uh, I think there is something there in this thing that lived on our earth that you've got to give something to that, uh, that possibility. Can I convince you to join the chosen people, since you seem to be fairly well off? We could use, <laughs> we use, a few donations. We could use the cash. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a lot of fun. The holidays are great. You don't yeah. have to eat much. <laughs> yeah, lots of food, though. Always a lot of food. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the book is called Bloodstains. Well, I can't keep hyping this book. Yeah, why not? I, Bloodstains by Jeff Mudgett. It's available, I am happy to say it's available in all formats. It's available in print, available in Kindle, available in Nook, available probably for your Kobe, your Schmoby, because you can Are we winding it, down? Is this, I don't know. I, about I got it? about uh, three minutes till. Oh, okay. So we're probably right. winding down. Uh, I so should, we can't get in anything heavy at this no, point, but we can make point. sure that when Jeff comes to L.A., he'll, he'll... When you come here, by the way, not only do you do our show, then you stick around for the show after and and uh, it's just a, a, it, it, a fun fest it's like it's you, you think that you've taken a journey uh, trying to find your great daddy uh, papa over there uh, this is really something devil daddy <laughs> <laughs> we hope to see you uh, this was a lot of fun thanks a lot Jeff good, good guy good guess thank you thank you very much for being on the show I've enjoyed uh, the heck out of this I was going to say hell but I decided not to go to the <laughs> but I've enjoyed the heck out of this and I can't wait to do it again with you all and uh, thank you very much you're very welcome and then there are all the listeners, make sure you mention uh, us when you buy the book, and Jeff will send a copy for you. Thank yeah, you, Jeff. Yeah, give a deal. I, I promise. Okay. And next week, uh, Howard, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your frame of mind, I'll be in Vegas. So you are. Are you going to be in Vegas? Yeah. Uh, say hi to Denny Griffith while you're there. Um, next week, 
The Alaska Mail Bomb Conspiracy, which I wrote about for the uh, book Masters of True Crime. Jim Bordenay, U.S. Postal Inspector. And uh, I've been trying to get Lou Gossett Jr., who played the part in the movie, to well, that join was a us. Lot, that was a long time ago, wasn't it? Yeah, that was. Uh, but uh, Jim Bordenay is a great guy. He's, and also, he'll reveal a lot about mail uh, fraud scams. Uh, so it'll be a great show. He's a great, uh, great conversationalist. You'll really enjoy it next week. Anything Jim about Bordenay. female scams? Yeah, female scams and male scams. Speaking of real scam lamenting dogs, Magic Man Allen and the demons of decadence, including myself and Howard and Mark and Sirius Vic and the octopi. All those octopies with their big tentacles on Wall Street. <laughs> Outlaw Radio. 